Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. America has experienced a surge in populism in recent years that has turned the established order of our politics on its head. Where does such a movement come from? What can history tell us about where it's going? And what can statesmen do to channel this political outrage for the good of all the people? In this episode, we bring you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2016 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Ben Dominich, co-founder and publisher of The Federalist, speaking on the rise of American populism. Dominich looks at the history of populism in America, from Andrew Jackson to William Jennings Bryan, and traces that strain of politics straight through the rise of Donald Trump. According to Dominich, the roots of the current populist uprising in America can be traced to the failure of elite institutions to address or even acknowledge the problems and needs of average citizens. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act and Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I want to talk to you a little bit today about uh, some thoughts in the context of the rise of, of populism in America. But I want to start uh, by talking about where this comes from as part of the American spirit. The motto that we have at The Federalist is, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. It comes from a speech by then-Governor Calvin Coolidge on the anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. He describes the boys of Bunker Hill as lovers of freedom, anxious for the fray, sons of Puritans, whom Macaulay tells us humbly bowed in the dust before the Lord, but hesitated not to set their foot upon the neck of their king. There is a rebellious spine of stubborn contrariness that runs up and down the American body politic. It has since our inception. It is the motivation that gives rise to a resistance that rejects our king and the views of our elites today. This populism is a healthy motivation. It can be turned in directions that are unhealthy, but properly directed, it represents the stubborn spirit that has time and again been of great help to our nation. It can teach us to be stoic and tough and has steeled the American people against threats that seemed insurmountable. Coolidge spoke of a revolutionary generation that rejected the assumptions of the elites of their time in favor of an idea of freedom. One such member of this generation was a descendant of the Scots-Irish Highlanders, a frontiersman of a people free as only the frontier could offer, who loved freedom and a good fight. Born in a life of hardship, the son of Irish immigrants whose father died before his birth, this young son of the Appalachians grew up to see one brother die at the hands of the British, another starved to death as a prisoner of war, a mother who died months later. When a British officer demanded this young man shine his boots, he refused, and the officer slashed him with a saber, scarring him for life. He was 14. He did not forget, and he did not forgive. He relied on his wits. He learned the law. He became Tennessee's first congressman, one of its first senators, a justice of the Supreme Court of the state, and a commander of the state militia. And when, on a January day in 1815, he had the opportunity to exact his revenge on the British for the deaths of his brothers and his mother, Andrew Jackson crushed the British army at the Battle of New Orleans. If we are to understand the particular American brand of populism, it's impossible to do so without understanding Andrew Jackson. 
When he ascended to national prominence as a general of volunteers, America was insecure and under threat from every side. The people were desperate for a strong man to set things right and represent their interests. When he arrived in Washington, the, the populist festivities had the elites of the city clutching their pearls. And when he left the stage, our foes had been utterly defeated. Andrew Jackson has fallen into ill repute of late. The party that once hosted Jefferson Jackson dinners has found both of these men too problematic. They are replacing him on the $20 bill. Uh, my own view is that uh, if the historical figure uh, set to replace him could have plausibly defeated Andrew Jackson in single combat, that would be okay. But since no one qualifies, I think it might be an error. Jackson was the, uh, the original political beneficiary of a populist movement in American politics. The corrupt bargain of 1824 was the original sin of cronyism and graft, writ large for the American electorate. His rejection of the pieties and assumptions of the elites and his advocacy for the respect and honor of the common man was essential to his elevation. He rode a populist surge into the White House and the halls of history. We are living in a populist moment today. It is a moment born out of a surge of disgust and distrust with the institutions of American life. It is a moment that represents the breakdown of the post-Cold War left-right politics of the nation, fueled by a dramatic decline of trust in America's elites and the institutions they run. The percentage of Americans with a great deal of trust in the presidency, the courts, public schools, and banks for unions, the justice system, big business, Congress, and the media are all at historic lows. In some cases, they are a rounding error away from zero. This decline of trust for American institutions didn't happen overnight. It began with Watergate and Vietnam, continued through the financial crisis, the Iraq War. Real failures undermine confidence in the capacity of elite institutions to do good and in their ability to represent the interests of the people. We are witnessing a populist rebellion where Americans are reasserting themselves against a bipartisan political and cultural establishment utterly discredited due to their record of failure. This distrust was earned by the elites who looked out for the interests of people other than those they were elected to serve. Rather than responding to the populist tendencies of the electorate with real changes, the elites overpromised and underdelivered. They thought they could get by holding a musket over their head in election years and prioritizing what lobbyists wanted all the others. They were comfortable in a bubble of economic success, a world away from the areas that saw no recovery. Elite indifference to populist opinion and the economic pain many Americans continue to experience created a vacuum that Donald Trump was happy to fill. The key to understanding this phenomenon is to recognize that Donald Trump is neither a disease nor a symptom. He is instead, for many Americans, the beta test of a cure. This year reveals the problem that occurs when a disaffected group of voters is lured by the message of a strong man who will work for their interests because they have been ignored by the elites of both parties for too long. It is no accident that Donald Trump broke with elite bipartisan consensus on the issues of immigration, trade, and foreign policy. In each of these arenas, elite consensus views were favored by the donor class, by big business, and by party leadership to the exclusion of others leaving a group of disaffected Americans who see their country slipping away for them, desperate for someone who would make a change. There are limits to the success of populism in America historically. They still exist today. William Jennings Bryan, Ross Perot, Pat Buchanan, they all experienced this. Some thought that Trump would be like Buchanan, who, if you will recall, nearly won Iowa, won four out of the first six contests in 1996 before succumbing to Bob Dole. 
but he may have more in common with the populist surge we saw at the end of the 19th century, when the Bourbon Democrats, who backed the gold standard in free trade and would be writing for the Wall Street Journal editorial page if they were around today, saw William Jennings Bryan come along and take over their party with a speech. The former is a politically important but limited incident, which warned of weaknesses in the party coalition but didn't prevent retaking the presidency on the part of the Republican Party four years later. The latter was a sweeping realignment of the politics of the country, which held down the Democratic Party for three presidential elections and ultimately led to its takeover by the progressives. The question I hear most often in Washington goes something like this. What would possess an electorate that four years ago nominated Mitt Romney to nominate a man who is so unlike him? The answer, in part, is that the people who nominated Romney aren't entirely the same people who nominated Trump. A new class of voter and participant decided to engage in the primary system in 2016, people who do not typically vote in primary elections. The question is why. Why did these people engage and vote when they rarely have in the past? And the answer is they're in the game now because the most precious prerogative available to any American is no longer extant, the prerogative to ignore your government. Donald Trump has the appeal of a traitor to his class, dispensing entirely with the politeness of politically correct elites and telling it like it is. If the president is to be an autocrat, let him be our kind of autocrat, his supporters say. The other side had their turn. It's our turn now. The mediating institutions run by American elites failed to prevent this. Consider the failure of one aspect of these elites, the media, in their coverage of Mitt Romney. The media referred to Romney as a bully, anti-immigrant, racist, stupid, unfit to be president. In 2012 alone, Paul Krugman called Mitt Romney a charlatan, pathologically dishonest, untrustworthy. He said Romney didn't even uh, pretend to care about poor people, completely amoral, a dangerous fool, ignorant as well as uncaring. Is anyone surprised that no one listens when the same labels are used on Donald Trump? Andrew Jackson's foes warned that he would throw the Constitution and the rule of law to the winds in pursuit of an aggressive promise of unilateral change. His supporters were fine with that. Like the Roman people's call for the dissolution of the Senate, they, need, they demanded a strong horse, an outsider who will fix all things, the powerful man who promises he will at long last get things done for the people. I had the luxury of spending a good deal of time in green rooms over the past year, and in those rooms, I would often ask a question of the media elites gathered there. Do you have any close family or friends who are voting for Donald Trump? The answer was almost universally no. They knew no one. They had no idea why anyone would want to vote for Trump. The explanation is simple. The people became so disgusted with the failure of the, of the elites that in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand because he offered them something different from the failures they knew all too well. In Washington, everyone uses Donald Trump to vindicate their prior assumptions. After the coming election, you will hear various corners blame conservative talk radio, alt-right extremism, Fox News, the political establishment, the donor class, the debates, reality tele television, and the rise of Kim Kardashian, among other causes. Some even sink to the level of blaming desperate Americans who voted for Mr. Trump for everything that's gone wrong, adopting Bertolt Brecht's suggestion that it would be easier to dissolve the people and elect another. A number of more intelligent commentators on the right and the left have delved into the question of America's lost greatness and discovered what would lead voters to find Donald Trump's populist message so appealing. It is the same phenomenon identified on the left by Chris Hayes in his book, The Twilight of the Elites, on the right by Charles Murray in Coming Apart, a dramatic failure of the institutions run by America's elites and nostalgia for a time when such institutions could be trusted.
Yuval Levin's book out this year, The Fractured Republic, may be the best explanation of why this populist message has modern appeal, even in an era of technological advancement once impossible to imagine. The Fractured Republic was composed prior to the success of Trumpism, in some ways making an even more insightful piece of commentary on why this political earthquake occurred. Levin describes with compassion and empathy the failings of a nation that has combined the twin dangers of extreme individualism and centralized governance, while ignoring the frustrations of the American working class. Levin tells where we have been as a nation, where we are, and why so many people are eager to shrug off the benefits of globalization to get back to where we were. In his telling, American politics and culture is gripped by a crippling inability to adapt to the demands of the modern age because of a false perception of the nature of the country, driven in large part by the lasting power of baby boomer nostalgia. The siren song of this longing calls us back to a time when jobs were stable, unions were strong, shared traditions provided a sense of underlying foundation, and our polity and culture was dominated by a handful of large, trusted institutions. It is the lure of a past rendered in a rosy glow. But this is a very skewed lens. The reality is that the period of 1950 to 1970 was very much at odds with the rest of the American experience. Large institutions of government were trusted to a much greater degree than they had been in the past. And the military eradication of many of America's economic competitors around the world allowed for the rise of corporate behemoths never seen before in American life. It is no accident that when Donald Trump is asked to identify the last time America was great, he cites the 1950s and 1960s, a period when a unified vision of the American dream held sway. In Levin's framing, we are driven by nostalgia for a time when the world made sense a time when America's common culture was overwhelmingly driven by underlying white identity politics. The vast majority of the country was Christian, at least in name, and employment was more stable and predictable than it is today in an economy exposed to global competition. But this wistfulness is blinding us to the truth about our current economic and social challenges. And it is not just the boomers who are animated by this counterproductive nostalgia. Many other institutions, including major media entities, social movements, and the Congress itself, is captured by this longing for the before time. Whether rooted in a desire for a system of governance that still runs on earmarks and smoke-filled rooms, or a desire for a shared culture where everyone says Merry Christmas, Levin identifies a crippling nostalgia that is hardly monopartisan. His opening chapter cites Krugman's The Conscience of a Liberal, which opens with a characteristic example of the, of the sort of homesickness or longing for a time that got it right. The Economist refers to his childhood in the 1950s as a paradise lost. It is the cultural domin dominance of this baby boomer vision, not as a period that breaks with the rest of the nation's history, but as an apotheosis of our greatness that has skewed politics to the point that many citizens are longing for a time when schools were segregated, taxes were high, and you had to save for a year to buy a refrigerator. Americans have suffered a disconnect from the traditional core institutions that make life in America better. Family, faith, work, and neighborhood. At the same time, the failure of our policies to mitigate or moderate the dramatic changes in our economy and culture have left, um, left some Americans feeling abandoned by their government. They aren't wrong. Our entire system of welfare, healthcare, and entitlements is built for a bygone era, one that was the exception to the American economic experience. Whether founded in the community or stood up by the government, our mediating institutions have failed to meet the needs of the people. Today, the American people view many of these institutions as irresponsible or corrupted, stagnant dinosaurs, incapable of responding to the speed of an advancing and evolving society. 
coupled with a decline in shared values and cultural experiences, moving from an era when two-thirds of the television sets in the country were tuned to I Love Lucy to one where highly developed subcultures thrive without any overlap, we see the disintegration of our common vision. We no longer share an understanding of what it means to be an American, instead viewing the pursuit of happiness as a purely individual act of self-actualization. One can measure this collapse in the decade and a half during which the American people have witnessed the 9-11 attacks, a failed war in Iraq, a bungled response to Katrina, a financial catastrophe, a Wall Street bailout, scandals in the Catholic Church, failed stimulus, an embarrassing launch of Obamacare, a series of incomprehensible Supreme Court decisions, and the rise of the Islamic State. All things that serve to raise distrust for our elites and the institutions they run as having even a basic capability to lead us through a time of turmoil. Given the decline of trust in centralized institutions, one would expect that Americans would, would not favor uh, investing more power in these entities. But that perspective represents a failure to understand what Alexis de Tocqueville and Robert Nisbet understood, that the rise of hyper-individualism and excessive centralization of government go hand in hand. As individuals become detached from the sources, sources of social order and meaning for their lives, they also become more desperate for strong leadership to make up for those perceived failures. Back to Levin, who writes, as a centralizing government draws power out of the mediating institutions of society, it leaves individuals more isolated. And as individualism further erodes the bonds that hold civil society together, people conclude only a central authority can pick up the slack. There's another nation where in the absence of such mediating institutions, we can see what happens. In Mexican society, as described in Jorge Castaneda's 2011 book, Manana Forever, in the, he writes, in the United States, there are approximately 2 million civil society organizations, one for every 150 inhabitants. In Chile, there are 35,000, or one for every 428 Chileans. But in Mexico, there are only 8,500, or one for every 12,000 Mexicans. 85% of all Americans belong to five or more organizations. In Mexico, 85% belong to no organization. In the U.S., one out of every 10 jobs is located in civil society. In Mexico, the equivalent figure is one out of every 210. In a multitude of polls taken in Mexico, a, a consistent 80% or more of those surveyed stated they had never worked formally or informally with others to address their community's problems. The end result is a nation where the hyper-individualized mob appeals to the strong centralized government for help time and again. The expressive individualism that Levin identifies as being the ethic of our age lacks the understanding of self and what individuals require beyond mere self-liberation or the generous funding of personal priorities. This is a dangerous trend that must be channeled back toward a more beneficent understanding of what freedom requires of us. This point about individualism brings us to an important question. How do we define a life well-lived? People want to be happy, and every American has the right to pursue happiness. But what, ha what happens if what makes us happy and the methods we use to pursue it undergo a dramatic change in ways that fundamentally alter the nature of the nation's longstanding political coalitions? Several recent books have addressed the phenomenon of large-scale demographic change from a variety of perspectives. Jonathan Lass, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, Hannah Rosen's The End of Men, Kay Heimowitz's Manning Up, Helen Smith's Men on Strike, Nick Schultz's Home Economics, and others have tracked the rise of this new American dream in the form of shifting demographic trends. They tell a story about the rise of single America, the delay of family formation, and the shifting definition of the life well lived. 
Together, these trend lines reveal the rise of a more individualist approach to living that prioritize, prioritizes career and personal interests over marriage, childbirth, and religion. This shift towards singlehood and away from family formation is notable for several reasons. It is unique in the American historical experience. Women and men are marrying later than at any time in our history. And with that comes the attendant drop in childbirth, with trends that cannot be explained away by the recent economic downturn alone. This trend is primarily confined to the lower and middle earners, discouraging financial stability, causing stagnation in household budgets. But what may be most remarkable about this trend is how little those in the political sphere understand its potentially lasting significance. For much of the 20th century, the definition of the American dream was commonly held. It was a house, a patch of green, a white picket fence, a husband and wife, two dogs, two kids, a nice car, a nice neighborhood with a good school and safe streets. Achieving that dream involved myriad paths, but the typical ones tended to make people gravitate toward a view which made them inclined to be more conservative as they approached middle age. Buying a house makes you care about property taxes. Balancing a family budget makes you care about income taxes and gas and grocery prices. Owning a small business made you care about burdensome regulations. Having children made you care about what programming was on television, what dangers existed in the world, and typically sent you back to church. You started to care about the school board and whether the teacher was actually teaching your children. Perhaps you have the first negative thoughts of your life about a union. And then you started to worry about debt and deficits, the rising costs of the state, mindful that you spend more and more time working not for yourself and your family, but for government and its dependents. These experiences lend themselves to a central, commonly held view of consistent cross-generational priorities and civic values. But today, we see the traditional pathway toward the American dream dissolving. Families are forming later, if at all, and breaking up with astonishing regularity for lower-income Americans. There's an increasing disengagement from civil society, diminishing church attendance. The financial crisis of 2008 was driven in large part by something always essential to the American dream, the idea of owning your own home. Today, the home ownership rate in America is the lowest it's been since 1965. What's going on here is bigger than government, but the state has undoubtedly fomented it. It's bigger than economics, though, uh, though perverse economic incentives have obviously contributed, and it's bigger than culture, though the culture has certainly been an accelerating agent. What we are witnessing is the death of the shared vision of the American dream, something we are only noticing in its absence. As Daniel Patrick Moynihan understood, the common belief in the importance of strong families and neighborhoods as essential to the American dream was the greatest hedge against expansive government. Without the underlying philosophical consensus, which has been at the heart of the American experience since its, since its inception, there is no long-term basis for a common understanding of how we define rights and responsibilities. And without that consensus, things fall apart. One of the things that falls apart is political coalitions. For roughly half a century, the American right has succeeded by following Frank Meyer's fusionist path. Meyer, an intellectual ex-communist turned libertarian, argued for an alliance of libertarians, conservatives, and anti-communists toward common aims in his influential 1962 book, In Defense of Freedom. He aimed to bridge the gap between the individualists and the communitarians, writing in 1964 that truth withers when freedom dies, however righteous the authority that kills it, and free individualism, uninformed by moral value, rots at its core and soon brings about conditions that pave the way for surrender to tyranny. In undertaking this project, Meyer followed a path consistent with the constitutional compromises of the founders. It was the fusion of James Madison that prevailed at the Constitutional Convention, not the arguments of Hamilton on one side or Jefferson on the other. But Meyer's approach is beginning to fail. 
It led a coalition which supported the rise of conservatives based on the concept of a three-legged stool of fiscal conservatism, traditional values, and strong national defense. The seat atop the legs of the stool was communism during the Cold War, and then for a brief time, really just the election of 2004, it was Islamic terrorism. In the wake of the Cold War and the post-Iraq foreign policy shifts on the right, the Meyer-era coalition has crumbled. Meyer's approach needs to be updated for a post-Cold War reality, and it is incumbent upon a new generation of leaders to do so. Our current elites have failed to connect with the American people, to meet the test of competency, and to live up to their promises of limited government, free markets, and free people. And that brings us to the starting point of where any new coalition must begin, with respect. The reason for today's populist revolt is a lack of respect. There is nothing more important than respect. It represents the implicit and sincere acceptance of democratic civil equality. The populist supporters of Donald Trump know the elites do not respect them or their plight. Over and over, they have been told by the elites, you are not allowed to want that thing. And they are fed up with it. To the establishment of our country, this breakdown looks like chaos. It looks like savagery. But to many people, it looks like democracy. As Angelo Cotavilla has noted, America is now ruled by a uniformly educated class of persons that occupies the commanding heights of bureaucracy, of the judiciary, education, the media, of large corporations, and that wields political power. Its control of access to prestige, power, privilege, and wealth exerts a gravitational pull that has made the Republican Party's elites into its satellites. This class's fatal feature is its belief that ordinary Americans are a lesser intellectual and social breed. It's increasing self-absorption, it's growing contempt for whoever won't bow to it, it's dependence for votes on sectors of society whose grievances it stokes have led it to break the most basic rule of Republican life, deeming its opposition illegitimate. Our American politics is broken because of a bipartisan alliance formed over decades between large institutions, an alliance which socializes risk, prevents competition, and rigs the playing field in ways that hurt family pocketbooks, crush innovation, and encroach on individual liberties. Today, big government and its partner bigs, banks, business, labor, ag, and their armies of lobbyists represent a common enemy to both communities and to individuals. Organic communitarianism depends on individual agency and autonomy in the market and in civil society. The breakdown of the ability of our neighborhoods to self-govern is collateral damage brought about by the left's war on individual liberty and the rise of an illiberal technocratic left those who seek to absorb, marginalize, or extinguish institutions of civil society which compete with them and the state. Facing such a systemic problem, today's populists are rejecting technocratic incrementalist approaches, merely tweaking the system as insufficient, and instead pursue more dramatic ends. They aim to tear down the elites and their institutions root and branch, and end the systems which have enabled their power grab. Where the Tea Party of 2010 aimed at returning power and prosperity from the bigs to American individuals and families through free markets, civil society, and limited constitutional government, today's populist surge scraps this small government ideology and instead demands a strong leader, a Jacksonian leader, who respects the people and disrespects the elites to put things right. Donald Trump assures voters that he will use authoritarian power for good to help those who feel with good reason ignored by both parties. But the American experiment in self-government was the work of a generation that risked all to defeat a tyrannical monarch and establish a government of laws, not men. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people is precisely what the Constitution offers and what is most threatened by great men impatient to impose their will on the nation. At its worst, 
This can turn into nothing more than hollow European-style identity politics. But conservatives have far more to learn from these developments than many might like to admit. The Trump voter is moderate, disaffected, with patriotic instincts. He feels disconnected from party and from broken public institutions, left behind by a national elite that no longer believes he matters. Imagine you were one of the millions of middle-aged, unemployed white Americans with a high school degree. There are today seven million men in prime working age who have dropped out of the labor force. That's 15% higher than we've seen since the end of the Great Depression. There are millions more who know people experiencing that pain as a brother, an uncle, or a son. Moved from unemployment to disability, you receive sufficient benefits to subsist, around $1,200 a month on average, and to pay for the alcohol and the drugs that help you self-medicate. Your life is essentially one marked by hopelessness, desperation, and anxiety. Alone among all demographics, your likelihood of suicide is rising. The things that make life not only endurable but happy are religious faith, now lost to you, family, which is fractured, community, which is disintegrated, and work, which you find impossible to come by. The TV screen flickers with images of people living lives you could never hope to emulate. Your situation is bleak, and while our Soma is better, it is still not replacement for the pursuit of happiness. And when a golden-haired man comes on TV, a man who represents a version of what you might hope your life could be like, a man who defies the elites, who is rich and successful, who comes from the world of the elites but is strong enough to reject them and their lies, and he tells you it's not your fault your life is the way it is. He tells you it's the fault of immigrants or bad trade deals or wasteful, pointless wars. He tells you the problem with the elites is not that they are too conservative or too liberal, but that they are stupid and that they don't care about you. He tells you with confidence that only he can make things great again. And you listen. This is why I believe Trump's rise actually reveals something good. President Obama's core domestic policy agenda was designed to pull working and middle class voters left. It assumed that once they received the government's redistributive largesse, they would be interested in maintaining it and maintaining the left in power. Trump's rise bespeaks the utter failure of this program for the American working class. They have seen the left's agenda up close and do not believe it's good enough to make the nation great. These disaffected Americans can be won by those who respect the pro-American Jacksonian spine that runs through it. The challenge now is for conservatives and free marketers to give these voters the respect they deserve. Remember Mark Twain, for in a republic, who is the country? It is, is it the government which is for the moment in the saddle? Why the government is merely a servant, a temporary servant. It cannot be its prerogative to determine what is right and what is wrong, to decide who is a patriot and who isn't. Its function is to obey orders, not originate them. The danger is that it's possible the American people are heading down a road that could leave them pinging back and forth between servitude and license. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, there are some nations in Europe whose inhabitants think of themselves in a sense as colonists, indifferent to the fate of the place they live in. The greatest changes occur in their country without their cooperation. They are not even aware of precisely what has taken place. They suspect it. They have heard of the event by chance. More than that, they are unconcerned with the fortunes of their village, the safety of their streets, the fate of their church and its vestry. They think that such things have nothing to do with them, that they belong to a powerful stranger called government. They enjoy these goods as tenants without a sense of ownership and never give a thought to how they might be improved. They are so divorced from their own interests that even when their own security and that of their children is finally compromised, they do not seek to avert the dangers themselves but cross their arms and wait for the nation as a whole to come to their aid. When a nation has reached this point, 
it must either change its laws and mores or perish, for the well of public virtue has run dry, and in such a place one no longer finds citizens but subjects. In the concluding chapter of his book, Yuval Levin makes the case for the citizen. He argues that we have underappreciated the importance of Americans to the American project, that our highly individualist, liberationist idea of liberty is possible only because we presuppose the existence of a human being and citizen capable of handling a remarkably high degree of freedom and responsibility. We do not often enough reflect on how extraordinary it is that our society contains such people. We must move beyond the sentimental politics of baby boomers seeking to restore an economic and cultural reality that no longer exists and instead build up the mediating institutions that sustain our system of self-government. The rise of American populism is due to the breakdown of faith in our institutions and our elites. The American people are demanding a better class of leader, a better class of elites who respect them. Our politics in 2016 has been warped by the nostalgia of the boomers, but it doesn't need to stay that way. It will be our people who determine this, not our politics. America has survived incredible things. At key moments in our history, when all could be lost, when the odds were stacked against us, we have won through. The risks our founding fathers took in the course of making this great experiment in self-government are not easily forgotten. And there is a stoic heart of our country that beats strong and has answered the call time and again. America was founded on, on an, uh, not on an old world belief that we are prisoners of our destiny or our birth, but that the world that we can pass on can exceed the one we were born into. This is not a uniquely American belief, but a human one, but not all cultures acknowledge or honor it. It was here in America where this belief was uniquely understood from our inception in our creed. We are born to an equal claim to life, to liberty, and to the pursuit of what lies beyond that far horizon. To deny this, to turn to the false prophets of authoritarians, is to break faith with our own humanity, rejecting what is best in ourselves. Yes, there are reasons to be scared. We are witnessing a fight over what our nation is to be. The current elite are craven and corrupt, and the people are calling out for aid. If those of us who still believe in constitutional freedom aren't the ones who answer, the authoritarians will. But it is the American people in all their forms, varied, courageous, humble, ambitious, free, who will together determine whether we move on from the wistful obsession with all that once was good and could be again to one nation after all. Be not afraid of this populist moment. The author of all things watches over us and we are a blessed nation. No matter what comes, the American idea is too strong to be eradicated by one man or one movement. It lives in our hearts. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jaja.